Hebrews chapter 1, Doing and Living Theology, part 15. And tonight we'll get back to the truths from which we must not drift away. So let's take a couple of moments of preparation. Father, we thank you for the infinite depth of your word, that it can never be tapped, that the wisdom and the knowledge that are hidden in Christ are infinitely deep. We thank you for the everlasting arms that are under us. We thank you that you are a God who reveals mysteries, as we've learned from Daniel chapter 2, that you're a God who reveals most of all the mystery that is Christ and him crucified. For there is no more brilliant revelation of who you are than the crucified Messiah. And as we progress in your word, Father, we pray that we will progress in the word of the cross, which is considered Nonsense by the perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the, the very omnipotent power of God. So we thank you, Father. We don't have to pray that your word goes forth and fulfills the purpose for which you sent it, because you've already promised that it will. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, You've heard me mention this several times. I'm going to call this simply theological exegesis. I was always taught, even as a young preacher and beforehand in Bible college, that we need to get together both theology and the exegesis of scriptures. And that's one of the things we're doing in this theology class. Theological exegesis. And I've decided to set up camp, as it were, so that we can go outside the camp. I've set up camp in Hebrews chapter 1. We're at least doing the exordium, which is from the immediate exordium is 1-1 to 3. But then it goes really from 1-1 to 2-4. Last week we tapped a little bit into 2-1 on the doctrine of drifters versus disciples. We're not done with that doctrine yet either. But Hebrews 1, and you're going to notice each time I read these translations are going to be maybe slightly different because I'm accurizing and getting it a little more accurate, a little more getting the sense of what's being spoken of. So Hebrews 1, 1, so far we have in fragmentary ways and by many figures of speech and speech acts, God who spoke long ago to our ancestors in the prophets, during these last days, has spoken definitively and completely in the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and we'll home in on this phrase, through whom he created the universe. Through whom he created the universe and I've struggled a long time on this one, not just for this message, but throughout the years. The word here is, the phrase is D-U, 
and then kai, K-A-I in the Greek, D-U-K-A-I, and then epoiesen, E-P-O-I-E-S-E-N, and I'm getting to it, epoiesen, and then tus eonos, which is we, we've seen before, T-O-U-S-A-I, O-N-A-S. And that looks like the ages, by whom he created the ages, made the ages. But this word is a versatile word, and it really captures both the temporal and the spatial aspect of the universe of created being, of created reality. So a proper translation is created the universe. If we understand that the universe is made up not only of spatial but of temporal aspects through whom he created the universe then is the translation of this d u and we're going to see how this is finds a rhyme in other passages the choice of this word then tus eonus captures the temporal and the spatial aspects of the creation in toto the sun through whom God the Father created the universe, in this passage, agrees with John 1.3, in which it says, all things came into being through him. Panta di autu, this time D-I-A-U-T-O-U, di autu, it's the same as D-U, D-U, and di autu refer to the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Son, or the Word. All things came into being through him. And that's, again, the word panta for everything, di autu through him, agenito, came into being. Now, we can interpret this to aeonus, then, the ages, usually as it's translated, is essentially equivalent to panta in John 1.3. And it's clear by a comparison of John 1, 3a with Hebrews 1, 2b. The sun through whom God made the eons or the ages or the universe is the same person as the word, as we've discovered in our early passages that we've studied. He is the same as the word through whom God brought everything into being. I'll say that again. The sun through whom God made the universe is the same as the word through whom everything came into being. John even gets more emphatic and he says nothing that ever came into being came into being without him. Therefore the son whom God appointed as heir of all things and by whom he created the universe is the same as the word, also known as the Son, whom the Father loves, says John 3.35. Whom the Father loves, and to whom he has given all things into his hands. What's the difference between John 3.35, the Son, into whom God has given everything into his hands, and the Son, to whom God has appointed heir of all things. No difference. It's the same person. And 
Belonging to this mix of John 1.3 and Hebrews 1.2 and 3 is Colossians 1.16, in which we hear that the Son of God's love, and that's what he's called in Colossians 1.13, the Son of God's love, God's love child, you could say, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, in 1.14 of Colossians, is... The image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Because in or by him was created the all things. This time panta is substituted by ta panta. The all things without exception in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether regions, my translation, whether regions ruled over by beings on thrones or lords, or rulers, or authorities. The all things were created through him and for him. Di autu, same as we have in John 1.3. Di autu, through him, or through whom, and for him. Di autu kai es auton ek tiste. And I'm just doing this just to show you the Compatibility of the Greek constructions here. So we have Colossians 1 15 and 16. We have Hebrews 1 2 and 3. We have John 1 3. In all these cases, we find the phrase di autu, which is through him in John 1 3 and Colossians 1 16, or the relative pronomial form. In other words, it's the same through whom in di u in Hebrews 1 2. The prepositional phrase di autu or di u is outstanding in all of these declarations of creation through God the Son. There is one through whom all the creation came into being in both its temporal and spatial aspects. The one is the Son and the eternal Word himself who is himself God. In fact, we may say that the creation is a Trinitarian action. The Spirit's activity is not as widely or highly publicized in the scriptures, partly because he chooses, I believe, to remain kind of anonymous sometimes. And so anonymous does the Spirit remain that we oftentimes credit our own accomplishments with something he's really done in us. So it takes humility even to really spot where he's working. It takes humility to even understand his working. His working is not easily perceptible, and it takes the ear of a true disciple, a person who sees layers in messages, for example. Now, regarding this, a man named Khaled Anatolios, in his 2000 book, which I do recommend, it's called Retrieving Nicaea. It's getting the Trinitarian doctrine back on board in a modern setting. And he did a good job. But he wrote this in his 2011 book called Retrieving Nicaea. He said, there is still an important distinction to be made between the glory of the divine nature for the sake of which creation exists. Please notice that. The divine nature for the sake of which creation exists. And the self-humbling Latin phrase pro nobis, which means for us. 
the self-humbling for us, which takes place in the human nature, so that humanity might rejoice in the glory of the divine nature that Christ shares with the Father and the Spirit. Now he goes on, or even before that, on page 288, he gives credit to Athanasius, who was highly involved with the Nicene Creed, from his book, Orations Against the Arians. Anatolius says, while giving credit to Athanasius, listen carefully to this. Creation takes place within the mutual delight of father and son, such that God's delight in creation is enfolded in the mutual delight of father and son. As Deus Donabilis, which is Deus Donabilis, which means the God, the gift, As God the gift, the Holy Spirit renders the father-son relation shareable and thus brings about creation as the site, S-I-T-E, of the extension of the father-son relation beyond divine being. In other words, all creation is an overflow of the delight of the father and the son, the delight of their rapport and fellowship, the overflow of of that delight is creation. Now here is where he makes a very important deduction, an interesting deduction. And this, I think, will help us to understand and think a little bit more clearly theologically about ecology. And this is what he says. And here I think we have not only an opportunity for unity with other Christians, on this subject, but we have an opportunity for unity with all people on this subject. He goes on to say, makes this interesting deduction. This is Khaled Anatolios. Such a Trinitarian account of creation speaks to our contemporary ecological crisis, leading us to see, now this is important right here, this is where it gets important, leading us to see that a destructive posture toward creation is blasphemous in its dishonoring of the father-son delight and the spirit's gift of giving that delight. Pam and I were recently talking about blasphemy and in the scriptures, blasphemy sometimes is against God, of course, but sometimes it's against a person made in God's image. When we easily slander someone, even a political leader, when we easily slander someone, that's blasphemy because you're slandering or kind of verbally murdering someone who's made in the image of God, as James 3.9 says. And so blasphemy can be slander of a human being. It can also be having a destructive attitude toward creation. So... I think that this conclusion that he makes, this deduction, contains a principle for unity among Christians with regard to the creation. Now listen carefully to this because this is a fine-tuned teaching. However we view the level of the ecological crisis 
or however we consider the extent of that crisis to be man-made or even if someone does not acknowledge that there is an ecological crisis, this is what we can agree upon. What can be agreed upon is that a destructive posture toward creation is blasphemous. I can agree with that. I, I think there's an agreement we can all have. No matter what you think, do you, someone will say, do you believe that there is an existential ecological crisis? And I do not believe it's an existential crisis because I do believe that the creator of the universe is the sustainer of the universe and that he upholds all things as we're going to see in the next phrase. But I do believe that there are ill effects from a destructive posture toward creation. If creation is the overflow of the delight of the Father and the Son, brought about by the Spirit, then how should we, we we should not adulate creation, worship creation, but we should have a profound respect for it. And therefore, I would say, and I would take a stand, that what Khaled Anatolius said here, a destructive posture toward creation is blasphemous, is something that we can all agree upon. And however we interpret the words of Revelation 19.2, which says that God has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth, by her fornication or her idolatry, and he has avenged the blood of his slaves that was on her hands. However you interpret that passage, it is clear that the corruption of the earth is not tolerated by the Creator. For the earth and its pleroma is the Lord's. The earth and its pleroma is the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 10.26, conferring with Psalm 24.1. Those of us who are confident in the preservation of the universe and the earth and sky by Christ, nevertheless must have profound respect for the earth, the sea, the waterways, and the sky. If it's the overflow of the delight of the Father and the Son, don't you think we ought to at least respect it? Now, we do a lot of things. Mankind does a lot of things, shoots a lot of things up in space, and tonight at 11.39, two satellites are going to finally collide up there. You know where? Dead above Pittsburgh. Google it. I don't care if you want to, but (laughs) interestingly, the earth is the Lord's and it's Pleroma. Those of us who are confident, and I am, in the preservation of the universe and the earth and the sky by the Lord, nevertheless, There has to be proper respect and care for the creation, the animal creation, the creation in general. 
and, of course, kindness toward humanity. Those of us who are confident in the preservation of the universe by Christ, nevertheless, are duty-bound as Christians to have profound respect for the earth, the sea, the sky, etc. After all, we actually groan, don't we, along with all of creation in anticipation of the liberation from corruption that is presently pandemic in the creation. Now, as far as the cause of certain ecological things, as far as the degree of man-made and all the rest of it, I, I heartily recommend Tony Sadar's book seriously, his books, his articles, because I think he's, God has given him a voice for balance, for the balance of this in the realm of science, in the realm of, true, I would say, sanctified common sense. So uh, I just want to add that. And uh, so that would be a good adjunct to theology. Ecological theology is a big thing now, even with Jürgen Moltmann. Some, of, some people are taking it so far, it's a result of their drifting. They're drifting. It's getting to be like peril, peril. And then you've got politicians with the brain power of a cricket telling us that 12 years, in 12 years, in 12 years, it's all over. In 12, you haven't heard that before? I mean, I went to Bible college. Jesus was coming in 1981. The apocalypse is coming in 84. No, it didn't come in 84, so how do you explain that? Well, it's 88, you know, the calendar was a little bit off. Now you were. Then it was Y2K. Then it was 2012. What's the next one? I haven't heard the next one. Anybody heard the next one? I haven't heard the next one. But I don't share that because the Bible does speak of an ecological crisis, but the cause of it is sin and the pandemic nature of it is all of creation. All the creation is groaning in slavery to corruption and it's because of sin and death and the flesh, which are eschatological enemies. Proper respect and care for the environment is a human duty and as such a Christian duty. Notice I said a human duty and as such a Christian duty. A human duty and as such a Christian duty. This does not mean that we have to join the ranks of ideologues who prophesy doom in the next 12 years in order to garner political support and power, which is the motive behind some of it. But it does mean that we ought to consider blasphemy not only as a sin against God, but also a sin against human beings made in God's image and a sin against the creation that is, quote, the sight of the extension of the father-son relation beyond divine being. Those words are exquisite. That's an exquisite definition of creation. The sight, S-I-T-E, of the extension of the father-son relation beyond divine being. That's creation. We've looked at it before. Maybe you don't recognize the concept, but we've looked at it before in the realm of an external procession from God. 
The action of the creation of the universe is flanked in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 by the appointment of the Son as heir of all things. There's a great universality of and all-inclusiveness when you talk about creation, you talk about his inheriting of all things, and when we talk about the redeeming of all things. There's always an all-inclusiveness in it, and nothing is lost in it. And I think you see that I've already seen this. That's why I'm savoring Hebrews 1, 2 to 3. I don't know how long we'll stay. And I've got temptations that come to me, very strong ones, like, why not do all of Hebrews? And then I think of the price that that's going to pay, and I go, no temptation anymore, but we'll see. I'll ask you a question. You can think about it. Why was it entitled Hebrews? When the guy wrote it, he didn't say this is to Hebrews. It doesn't say it anywhere. So who it was entitled. It was titled probably in the second century. So why did they entitle it the epistle to the Hebrews? Who are the Hebrews? You say they're the Jews. No, that's a special word, Hebrews. And it's kind of universalistic in a way for Believers in Christ. So why was it called the epistle to the Hebrews? Is it even a good title? And that's going to be. I'll just ask you that and I'll leave it. I have a pretty good answer, but. Not a perfect one. So this idea of the creation of the universe as a Trinitarian action is flanked by the appointment of the son as heir of all things on the one side and. On the other side, the declaration that the Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact impress and stamp of his substance, is the one who bears and carries all things. Bears and carries all things by the word of his power. Now, the present active participle of the verb pharaoh is used here. Not pharaoh, the Egyptian emperor or king, but pharaoh, the verb, P-H-E-R-O. And this is an interesting verb because it describes the current activity of the sun and has the meaning not only of bearing or upholding, which is usually what translations say, but also the activity of carrying or gently driving or guiding or bringing or leading. So the idea conveyed by this verb is that the Son is not only the one in whom all things are held together, which is the idea in Colossians 1.17, but that he moves all things by a gentle omnipotence toward an eschatological consummation, otherwise known as the external term of the divine missions, as we've noted. That this eschatological end is salvific or saving in its essence and in its activity. that it is saving in its activity is evident from the profoundly significant fact that this action of upholding and guiding, driving gently, omnipotent, gentle omnipotence sounds like an oxymoron. How can omnipotence be gentle? Why not? 
All power is gentle. I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. His gentleness has made me great, said David. His gentleness has promoted David. So the present active participle of the verb pharaoh describes the current activity of the son of bearing and carrying. The idea conveyed by this verb is that the son is not only the one in whom all things are held together, but that he moves all things by gentle omnipotence toward an eschatological consummation. And that this eschatological end or termination or goal or objective is salvific, is evident from the profoundly significant fact that this action is being carried on by the exalted Son both while making purification for sins while he was on the cross like Atlas holding up the world after which he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high the majesty on high is what we call a circumlocution many times instead of just saying God and the Jews are very nervous about saying God. If you even read the Jerusalem Post, I don't know if they still do it. I used to subscribe to it. When they talk about God, it's G-D. They won't. Same with Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton, instead of Yahweh. And so a circumlocution is really a reverent way. It's not, it's not a, avoiding the name God, but it's a reverent way. For example, the kingdom of the heavens was a circumlocution. It's a kind of talking around the fact that we mean the kingdom of God. But it's a kingdom from the heavens where God dwells. And you get the idea, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a, a fear. It's more like a reverential awe of God. So the majesty is what we call a circumlocution, a talking around. And it means God, of course. But you think of him in terms of his majesty, his glory, his Shekinah splendor, his radiance. And so this son is seated. He sat down at the right hand, not on a separate throne, but on the same throne as his father. The majesty on high. The Son is the Lagos, who was with God and who always existed as God, as the one through whom God created all things. See, these are the things that we're not supposed to let drift away. These are the things that we are really is a great salvation for us. All of the things I'm saying tonight constitute a great salvation, as Hebrews 2.3 will tell us. Since the creation which was brought about by him, he has always sustained, held together, and moved all things toward a redemptive conclusion. This was true yesterday. This is true today. And this is true to the ages. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and into the ages. But here, listen carefully now. I need your attentiveness to be sharper this year than ever before. Your vision to be 2020, your hearing to be extraordinary. It is particularly noteworthy that the Son continues this action of bearing and carrying everything toward a conclusion, that He does it after having made purification for sins. 
That's profoundly in the mix here. And after having sat down, that whole action of the sun sitting down is profoundly significant at the right hand of God. It does not say that he made purification for some sins. It does not say that he made purification for many sins. It does not say that he made purification for the sins of Israel. It simply said that he made purification for sins, which gives us the idea, all sins. That this means all the sins of the whole world and all of time, to me, is clearly evident because I spend a lot of time reading the Bible. And I found in 1 John 2, 1 and 2 that he's a propitiation and the expiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's all of humanity and all of its times. And from passages on top of that where sin itself as an entity or the sin of the world have been said to be put away or have been taken away by him. Hebrews 9.26, John 1.29. He appeared once at the close of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We ought not let these things slip away. The fact that after having made this purification from sins, he sat down. That phrase itself has incalculable significance Because as the writer will go on to emphasize later in this sermon, and Hebrews is a sermon, having sat down is starkly contrasted with the action of priests of the old order who keep standing and keep offering the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But this man, having offered one sacrifice for all time for all humanity, sat down. That's Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. In contrast to these priests, the plurality of priests being a weakness itself, this one, who will later be called in this epistle, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, allowing Psalm 110.4 to echo powerfully into Hebrews and throughout. After having offered one sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. How do you like that phrase? One sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. Sat down. When you finish a task, you say, I'm finished. Well, what are you going to do about it? I sit down. (laughs) The fact that the son sat down is as important as the fact of where he sat down. He sat down on high at the right hand of the eternal majesty. On high means in the highest possible height of the highest possible heaven. Ephesians 1.21 says above every name that can be named. In this age of the one to come. Names that carry adulation with them. Angelic names, Raphael, Uriel, Gabriel, Gabriel, Michael. He's above every one of those names. We're going to learn soon to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? (laughs) Which of the angels, he called them sons of God, Bini Ha Elohim, but he never said to one of them, you are the son. 
Not to any of the angels. So the fact that the son sat down is just as important as the fact that he sat down on high at the right hand of the eternal majesty, which signaled the eternal majesty's total acceptance of his one-time sacrifice. And that he moves everything that happens in all the universe and the universe itself toward a divine end from that place of his exaltation after accomplishing this great redemption, requires us to think that the end or the objective to which he is leading or bringing or carrying all things is a universally redemptive end. We can't think of it any other way. Not rightly. Look, I'm making all things new. Happy birthday, Bruce. Look, I'm making all things new. He's making all things new for you. That's what the enthroned one says in Revelation 21.5. This is still in keeping with the cross-pollination of our two ongoing series, DM, or Doctrine of the Mystery, and DLT, Doing and Living Theology, in which we have learned that the divine Trinitarian objective for all creation is discovered by God making known to us the mystery of his will, which by now you ought to know is to sum up all of created reality in all of its times in Christ. God's son, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, the eternal word made flesh, John 1, 1 to 3, 1, 14. Not only will all things be summed up in his son, but the son himself is directing everything to that end. All of this is done in unrestricted love by the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5.10 And who will have mercy on all. In Romans eleven thirty two, everything is being upheld and moved toward a universally salvific termination by Jesus Christ and him crucified. What was he doing when he was bearing your sins, bearing the world too, bearing the universe, carrying it? That's a picture of what he's always doing. Government shall be upon his uh, shoulder, his shoulders. Atlas ain't got nothing on him. In fact, Atlas is a good depiction of what's happening. That's how he governs. He doesn't govern by some high and mighty emperor. He governs by carrying, bearing, bearing you like a nursing child. Like a mother bears a nursing child, like a father carries a child on his shoulders. So, everything is being upheld and moved. Now, I love Jurgen Moltmann. I was very impatient with him because the Spirit of Hope, the book, is there's a lot of chapters that are eclectic. He has a lot of interests, some of which go way out of my field. But he finally got around to my interest, and I'm in that 
part right now, and it's, of course, usual, Jürgen Moltmann, wonderful doctrine, theology. He said this in Spirit of Hope. It was written in 2019. Quote, the preserver of the world is revealed in the crucified Christ, for he bears the sins of the world and also the suffering of its victims. He then went on to show how this is poignantly, he says, expressed in the last verse of a poem. The poem is called Morning Glory, Starlit Sky, and it's by W.H. Vanstone. If you ever want to get that, I, it looks like intriguing to me. It looks like some good poetry. W-H-V-A-N-S-T-O-N-E, Vanstone. And this is what Vanstone, the last lines in his poem called Morning Glory, Starlit Sky. He said, Thou art God, no monarch thou, throned in easy state to reign. Thou art God, whose arms of love, aching, spent, the world sustain. I'm going to say that again. I, I find that, well, that gets down to the heart where I have a love for creativity. But he says, thou art God. No monarch thou throned in easy state to reign. Thou art God. Whose arms of love aching spent the world sustain. Indeed, as he bore the sins of the world, he was bearing the world. Bear one another's burdens, says the scripture, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who bears the burdens of the world. As he carried our sins away in his body. Like the scapegoat in the wilderness. He was carrying the world to its transformed and glorious future. I actually wrote that, so I'll have to repeat that. As he carried our sins away in his body, he was carrying the world to its transformed and glorious future. The more we see the crucified Christ, the more there's a depth of appreciation. It is unequaled in considering anything else in this world. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and for the ages. And I love Moltmann's conclusion. Quote, the world preserving God is less like a heavenly emperor than like Atlas. Bearing the globe on his strong, patient Shoulders. You say, well, that's a little weird. No, it isn't. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His shoulders. His patient shoulders. Now, it's certainly true that this crucified Christ is now risen and exalted. But he is the same Christ who was crucified. That's what we got to get through our minds. He's the same Christ who was crucified and who remains the crucified and risen and exalted Son of God. Again, in this statement has really stuck with me recently, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was certainly right 
and profoundly so when he said, quote, the arc, A-R-C, of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's a profound saying. That's profoundly true. And I, don't, I would never want to amend it. I don't amend this saying, but I want to compliment it by saying that the justice toward which this moral arc bends is mercy. The saving justice of the cross, the arc, the moral universe, the arc of the moral universe does indeed bend toward justice, the justice, the saving justice of the cross of Christ. Because God will have mercy on all. I'm not amending his saying. I'm complementing it and supplementing it. The saving justice of the cross by which the victims of evil and oppression and prejudice and violence are given justice. And the perpetrators of the evil are given the righteousness that they so egregiously lacked in their perpetration of the evil. And listen, this giving of righteousness to the perpetrators and justice to the victims is not something done lightly, but in a purification by fire. For our God is a consuming fire. 1 Corinthians 3.13, Hebrews 12.29, for example. Moreover, the sins that the Son made purification of, listen carefully to this, the sins that the Son made purification of are sins of the perpetrators and sins of the victims. The line runs through us all. Victims aren't sinless. There's only one sinless victim, and it's Jesus Christ. Victims aren't sinless. If we've been victims, and all of us have been victims of something or some injustice along the line, or we haven't lived. And all of us have probably been perpetrators of evil or of slander or of something that hurts someone. There's things we have to be very careful as those who preach the word because as James 3.1 says, not, there should not be many masters or many pastors because of such is the greater condemnation. And we can say things that offend and we don't even know we're offending in the wrong way. Now, there's the offense of the cross. We can't hide that. But we say things that have been hurtful, perhaps. We didn't know we were hurting someone in the wrong way. Because if you spend an hour talking, if you spend an hour talking, I challenge you in that whole hour not to say anything that's hurtful to somebody. You spend an hour on the phone, you never said anything hurtful about anyone. I know it was all prayer, right? It was all prayer. It had nothing to do with you saying anything negative about anybody. You try, I'll say it this way, you try talking for an hour and not saying something bad. I know, hell, I can't do it. <laughs> you say, hell, you said hell. Hell isn't, that's not a bad word. I love that word. Now, the sins that the Son made purification of are sins of both perpetrators and victims, for I think it says somewhere in the scriptures, all sinned and came short of the glory of God. All sin and come short of the glory of God. And it seems that all 
have required the justification by grace that's found and founded only in the redemption that is in and by Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24. Because our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is the one bending that arc of the moral universe, he's the one bending that arc. And because he is... That arc bends toward universally saving justice. And you know what? I think Dr. King knew that. I think he had a lot of universalistic bent in him. So, what are we doing? Have I asked that before? Have I? Pam's going, yes, you have. What are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. We're doing theology by a theological exegesis of the exordium of Hebrews, the introduction of Hebrews. That's what I'm doing. What am I doing? A theological exegesis. That's an exegesis where you talk a whole lot about God, the majesty on high. When we see the majesty on high, we're going to be shocked by the majesty because I'm trying to show you that the one who bears the universe did it as a crucified one. What's the majesty going to look like? Not the majesty of the Caesars, not the majesty of the pharaohs, not the majesty of the palace or the White House or all of the presidents and kings and dictators of this world, it's not going to be like that at all. We're talking about a majesty of one who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. So what's that majesty going to look like? It'll be the infinite humility of the one who condescended from his high estate gave himself didn't really care that much about being God didn't even really care that much about being called God or when somebody said you must be the Messiah he said well don't tell anybody (laughs) be prepared to be humbled by a view of humility that will shock you out of your robe. What we're doing is a theology with a divine intention and the human expectation. I said we're doing a theology with the divine intention and the human expectation that we will live theology by a created participation of God's love. The love with which God loved the world so much that he gave it his son. We have to remember that. God loved the world so much that he gave. We have to remember what he's saying there. God loved the world so much that he gave it, the world, his son. He gave the world his son. And we've said it before. He loved the son so much he gave him the world. It's good to see you're feeling better. Are you feeling better, Lynn? That was my prayer that did that. Well, everybody, we, a lot of us prayed, but I think mine got through better. Okay. I'm just kidding. Just kidding.
the love with which the Son had loved us so much that he gave us himself. Galatians 2.20, Titus 2.14. The love that is God's gift of his own holy love that is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us in Romans 5, 5. This love can be poured out in the heart of a Muslim and the Muslim doesn't even know that he loves God. It can be poured out in the heart of a Buddhist and the Buddhist doesn't even know what hit him. It can be poured out in, this, in the heart of an atheist and she wouldn't even know what did it. She always has, she all of a sudden has a love for her family, for everybody, for people she once hated, for creation, for animals, for herself. Where'd that come from? Well, it'll catch up to her. It's the love of God poured out in her heart. It's a universal gift. It can show up wherever it wants, and it doesn't have to show up where somebody has believed in Jesus Christ. See, I've got to always throw one shocker in there. There it is, the shocker. You say, can you prove this and can you point this out in the scriptures? Of course I can. Will you do it tonight? No. <laughs> this love that's poured out in our heart includes God's own love, God's own love for all of humankind and Christ's own love for those whom he's not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters, his siblings, Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, which comes from Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. So my prayer, as we wind down, is that this little phalanx of advancing believers will do what Hebrews 13, 1 commands. Let sibling love continue. It's begun. It's taken root. Let sibling brotherly love, Philadelphia, continue. It's a terrible thing to say in Pittsburgh, I know. Let Philadelphia continue. Except Pastor Brown loves that, Philadelphia. He loves Philadelphia. So, this love is a graced imitation of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. And what does, what does it mean that it passes knowledge? It means a lot of things, but one thing means it means that it's past the knowledge of your sins a long time ago. The love of Christ passes the knowledge of your sins. It always does. What about my sins today? The love of Christ passes the knowledge of them. You might, your heart might condemn you. But God is greater than your heart. His love passes the knowledge of your sins. Does your love pass the knowledge of the sins of others? Who have sinned against you. For we sin against one another. This love is a graced imitation of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. This love is a graced imitation of God whose love is perfect and non-discriminating. This love is consistent because it is that which Aquinas and others called the habit of charity. It becomes our deed, our habit of charity, of love, which in turn is a creative participation of passive spiration which has a special relation of love to the Father and the Son, whose delight 
spilled over by the action of the spirit to be the site of the extension of the father-son relation beyond divine being. That's what you are, too. You are the site of the father-son relation beyond divine being. And you've been given the privilege, as well I have, of being a partaker of the divine nature. So in closing, let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. In fragmentary ways and by many figures of speech and speech acts, God who spoke long ago to may not be our ancestors, but simply the ancestors in the prophets during these last days has spoken definitively and completely in the son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the universe who is the radiance of God's splendor and the impress of his substance who also bears and carries everything on by the spoken word of his power, who, having made purification of sins, sat down at the right of the majesty on high. The spoken word of his power is Tetelestai. Thank you, Father, for this time together, which we cherish and which we treasure. May we listen to your words that will not return void, that have come through tonight by the Spirit, by the action of the Holy Spirit. And give us the kind of discernment that discerns the activity of the Spirit who chooses so often to be anonymous. May we understand that it's he that is pouring out the love of God in our hearts. It's he that's giving us that love. And we thank you for this privilege. We pray that as we continue in this doing and this living of theology, that we will truly be, in fact, imitators of you, Father, and that we may truly walk in love as Christ did so that our lives, like his, can arise as a fragrant aroma to your throne and a pleasure to you because you're pleased with our faith and pleased with our hope and pleased with our love because it's all come as an overflow of the delight that you have in your son and the delight that your son has in you, Father, a delight that spills over to our hearts by the Spirit. And we thank, we just simply thank you in Jesus' name.